you're listening to the Knowing Motherhood podcast. I'm your host, Linnell Peters, and it's an honor to walk alongside you in motherhood, whether the journey is just beginning or you're right in the thick of it. I believe that your worth as a mother is not based on your performance and that your greatest strength is the love that you have for your children, whether they're in your arms or only in your heart. My prayer is that this little corner of the podcast world will leave you feeling more equipped, more hopeful, and less alone than when you arrived. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast today. I want to welcome you here and also thank you for being here. Today's episode is a little different. I'm so happy to have another professional joining me for a very important educational discussion about maternal mental health. It could potentially have a very positive impact on many women's postpartum experience, whether it's your own or someone you love. And I'm just going to add on to that that I encourage you to share this episode. It really, really is an important one to pass on to um, the women in your circle that could be walking through this road of maternal mental health disorder so okay pregnancy and those early months with a new baby are often filled with so many sweet moments even when challenges like back pain nursing issues and colic are present but for a mother battling a perinatal mood disorder it can feel like a nightmare and it has nothing to do with her child a mother's greatest desire is to care for her child and enjoy her time with them so anxiety, depression, and intrusive thoughts can be incredibly overwhelming. I'm very thankful to share with you my conversation um, today with Carrie Van Wilden. She's a therapist based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who specializes in helping mothers and families who are dealing with a perinatal mood disorder. She offers so much of the information that I wish I could have had knowledge of prior to becoming a mother. We discussed everything related to the subject of perinatal mood disorders, including what they are, descriptions of each one, symptoms to be aware of, available help and treatment, and how to support a mother walking through one of these disorders, and so much more. As a warning, I need to mention that if you are pregnant, and have an existing anxiety disorder or have been experiencing any kind of anxiety during your pregnancy, please consider if this is the right time to listen to this episode. We do provide a few trigger warnings, but I want to make sure that you are aware that some of the conditions we discuss are of a more severe nature. That being said, if you're worried that you're dealing with something more than the baby blues, the explanations and gentle affirmations that Carrie provides, she, they might be exactly what you're needing to hear today. Here's my conversation with Carrie Van Wilden. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really thankful that you're joining me today because we're having a really important conversation and uh, it's a topic that is, uh, it's talked about a lot more uh, today than it has been in the past, but I think there still needs to be a lot more conversation about perinatal mood disorders, mental health and perinatal mood disorders. Absolutely. I'm glad you're here to just uh, shed some light on 
on this and to help to educate further because um, there's so many questions, so many misconceptions um, about perinatal mood disorders. A lot of people don't even know what the word perinatal means. So we're going to be touching on that and a lot of other questions and just different details to, to what these look like and what healing looks like and everything in between. So can you just start by sharing a little bit about who you are and also about what you do? Sure. I am um, a perinatal therapist. I specialize doing mental health therapy for women during the perinatal period. Um, and I'll explain a little bit about that term in a bit. I do private practice therapy. So I meet one-on-one -on -one with women and families during this time of life and provide individual mental health therapy to help them process concerns and provide a safe place for them to share. Yeah, that's great. And I, a little bit about my background is that I have for most of my career specialized in this time of life and supporting women and families during the childbearing years. So I feel really passionate about, about this time. Um, I love working with women during this stage and dads. It's um, a time where families are highly motivated to do the best they can. I've yet to meet a mom who dad who doesn't want to be the best dad or best mom possible and so when I'm doing therapy um, and meeting with them I find that it's a very hopeful time of time to make changes time to understand themselves to see what their new role looks like as a mom even if it's the second third fourth child their role is always changing as a mother or father mm-hmm mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love that you're helping to support them through that because it's not, it doesn't come naturally to most of us. And um, especially when we get hit with something like, you know, these different mental health challenges, it just really can throw us off from, from doing the best job that we can. So can you talk a little bit just about the mom and babies group that you started, um, where that was, and just a little bit about what the goal for the program is. Um, and the you know the unique structure of the care that was that is provided there because um, I just think that we need more programs like this um, in North America. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I, along with a team of people, helped start something called the Mother and Baby Program at Pine Rest, which is a very large psychiatric facility here in West Michigan. Um, it is. When we opened it, we actually had a perinatal nurse um, who worked doing delivery, labor and delivery, and then began to focus and understand and see more postpartum depression and anxiety. And she actually came to um, Pine Rest and said, hey, I want to I wanna see what's happening here. And I know some people have inpatient experiences. And, and what do you think about opening something that would be more specialized? And then at that time, the staff and the leader said, yeah, I think we could do this. And they opened up a day program specializing in treating women with perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. So women during pregnancy or postpartum can take their infant with them if they're postpartum and receive treatment during the day, go home in the evening, and they can access psychiatry, nursing, mental health therapy, occupational or activity therapy. And 
really receive a comprehensive treatment approach so they can feel more like themselves again. And um, I have, I'm no longer working there. I felt really a calling to go into private practice and do individual therapy. The program is still running and doing great. As far as I know, it's served over a thousand women, women drive from all over to come to that program. When we opened, it was the second of its kind in the nation. There was um, someone who started the program in Rhode Island. Now there are over 12 across the country, and I know there is one in Toronto. I am not sure about Western Canada, but I know um, I know there's places that keep track of these lists of these, uh, these specialized programs. There are more in the UK than there are in the United States, so we're a little in North America, so we're a little behind. And hands down, the research supports when women receive specialized help and knowledgeable help, they will get the best kind of treatment possible and to get better faster. Mm, that's so good. So I just wanted to clarify about the, the, the mom and babies group. Is, is this like an all day? You said that they can come for the whole day and then go back at night. So they're actually able to be receiving care for a long part of the day? It's something called the, a, a partial program. And so treatment across states and across provinces work differently. So I think depending on where you live, you need to remember what kind of treatment you might be available to you. But in this area, mental health therapy during there's kind of two different types of intensive therapy and one is inpatient care. And that's when there's a risk of harm to self or others. And that would mean you need to stay overnight because you need to, there's some sort of safety risk either with medication adjustments or, or suicidal risk, um, lack of sleep, lack of functioning, things like that. This program is intended when someone can be safe, someone can Um, a woman could say, you know what, I can function. I just, I need the specialized treatment. And so we did have women who would go inpatient and then come to our program or sometimes start in a program and say, I need something a little more and go inpatient. Um, But this program was for women and is for program women who can stay safe at night, have a good support system, um, and then get treatment during the day from about nine to 3 PM. And then usually for four to 10 days participate in the program. Wow, that's incredible. Okay, let's jump into talking about perinatal mood disorders um, because most people are familiar with postpartum. Um, The term postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. Um, But now there's, you know, this, this term perinatal mood disorders that because I think and you can explain this more, but it's becoming more understood that a lot of these disorders start before babies are born. It's not just postpartum, right? So it can happen during pregnancy for some women and such. So, um, but, and, and before we kind of get into talking about the perinatal um, mood disorders in um, specifically, I'd like to just talk a little bit about mental health stigma because I think that it's a good way to kind of start off the conversation and touch on why this conversation is so important and why it's it's a difficult one uh, to have as well. So um, can you just talk a little bit about that? 
why that stigma exists and if you can touch on a little bit about you know what your perspective is on how the news and media affects our perspective of mental illness and then how how can we kind of how can we overcome this how can we do more to allow that conversation to become a little more comfortable absolutely so mental health stigma stigma exists in almost all types of issues but mental health stigma is particularly about really a miss when people misunderstand what mental health treatment is or what mental health disorders are it's when there's a bit of a mentality sometimes about you can mind over matter this it's um they treat it sometimes talk about it as if it's not a real illness it's something that you can just think yourself through and uh, sometimes terms and words are used incorrectly like they're going crazy or they're mm-hmm. psychotic and those are all crazy is really an inappropriate term when you really think about it um, we never use that clinically we never use that in, in that sort of way um, and it's really demeaning and harsh mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we all use it sometimes, like, I feel like I'm going crazy, but right. um, sometimes it can be used in a demeaning way. And uh, it certainly exists, and it prevents people from getting help. It prevents people from um, feeling judged if they get help, if they say, you know what, I saw my therapist, and then maybe the feeling like someone would think, oh, they're less of a person because they get therapy, or if they start medication, how come they can't just do it on their own, and it's a mm-hmm. sign of weak a sign of weakness is another element of stigma the way to fight stigma mental health stigma is to work to equal mental health treatment and symptoms as you would uh medical medical health and medical disorders so if someone has diabetes and has high blood sugar you would say oh yeah go take your insulin and see your doctor on a regular basis and Mm -hmm. it's not just about your diet right it's Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. everything and whereas if someone were to say i I have depression or anxiety i take this medication to help me with it we should begin to just see it in the same way as a matter of fact part of life and it certainly is affected by stress but really we know there's so many different other factors affecting mental health disorders yes yes and um i think that there's so much more still to to be to learn to discuss and talk about um but there there has to be the shame element of it can you touch on that a little bit for people personally like even just going to a friend and opening up and saying this is what i'm dealing with the shame is a huge part of this right absolutely and even sometimes some of you listening might think oh this is this is kind of hitting me close to home it's hard to hear this information and I I wonder if I've had these symptoms or I'm going to listen more to find out if I've had symptoms and I guess what I want to talk about is first of all shame is the feeling like I'm a bad person whereas guilt is I did a bad thing yeah and with mental health you've done nothing wrong so first of all guilt doesn't apply and second of all shame really does not apply. And I I know you're a Christian and you talk about this and how we think of how God sees us. God Mm -hmm. sees us as beautiful creations, you know, people that he created in his own image. And so to think I am a bad person, that just really doesn't match up with what 
we know God desires for us and how he created us to be. And so, mm-hmm. so shame certainly affects our thinking and affects, and, and so it is important to resist that shame and, and say, you know what, I am a really good person. I'm struggling. This is a sign that I need help. And, um, I think shame does line up with our fear of what other people think of us, what, yeah. how we were raised, things like that. Does right. that help explain that? Yeah, I think that's good. And I think I like, I like how you said we need to resist. We need to resist shame. We need to, we need to actually say no to that. And I think first we need to recognize that that's what is keeping us from sharing. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then we need to say no to it, that this is not helpful and, but it's hard. It's easier said than done. Uh, cause that can go really deep. It can be really deeply rooted. So let's talk about the perinatal, um, mood disorders. Can you talk about the time frame? Uh, what generally, what time frame kind of fits in the perinatal, um, stage um and then what specifically perinatal mood disorders are and also what what more common conditions fall under this this broad term sure yeah so perinatal means peri means around the time of and then natal means childbirth so the term really means around the time of childbirth around the time of childbearing and it is a much better term to describe symptoms for most women versus postpartum depression or mm-hmm. postpartum. That was really the term they used as a catch-all for everything for a long time, postpartum mm-hmm. depression. They have mm-hmm. postpartum depression. And so women who would say, I don't feel depressed. In fact, I feel highly anxious and can't stop moving. And um, anxiety has a little more energy around it. They would say, I don't have that. So then there must be something wrong with me. So using the right terminology really matters. So it's saying perinatal mood or anxiety disorder is my preferred language and what the research supports now. And a perinatal mood disorder is an umbrella term to describe many types of symptoms that women could experience during this time. Mood and anxiety disorders if we take the perinatal time frame out of it is something also that people could experience at any time of their lives. And that explains, I'll go through what those symptoms and disorders are called in a little bit more detail. The other thing I want to talk about is just the time frame. So people oftentimes ask, well, could I still have a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder when I'm pregnant? Can I have a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder when I am six months postpartum, 12 months postpartum, Mm -hmm. a year and a half postpartum? And so there is argument about this and I won't get too technical, but the DSM, which is our diagnostic criteria says actually two weeks postpartum and all specialists and all people who our experts in the field say that is not accurate. And we all know that six months to 12 months pregnancy to six to 12 months postpartum is generally regarded as an acceptable time frame to, to say, and that's when it started. So someone might have an onset, but then because of symptoms, because of barriers, not seek treatment until two years postpartum. Right. Mm, And so then we we can still call it that and we want to treat it that way because it does mean there are specific symptoms. There are some specific things that we want to consider 
because of this time of life, just like we would if we were treating a teenager or treating an older adult, or if we were treating someone who has in, in a special time of life, we want to treat, treat it in a, in a specialized way with someone who's an expert in that time of life. Mm, okay. What, what types of perinatal mood disorders uh, can affect women um, in this state, in this time frame, and um, and what are the differentiating factors between them? Let's kind of just give our listeners a, just a really simple but clear picture of of what these are, and then kind of just how they differentiate from each other. Sure, that makes a lot of sense, and I think one thing I'd like to say is, as we talk about this, if you find that hearing this information doesn't make you more anxious or it's it's kind of hard to hear about it. just really read your own gut feeling of whether this is helpful information right now or if it might be better to talk about this individually with a specialist mm-hmm. I will work to identify triggers or things that I think might be particularly triggering that I know trigger other people but I think one of the things that you and I talked about as we planned for this is this is a very hopeful time this is very treatable and so this information is given to you as a way of um, to support other people and also support yourself and validate yes. what you might already be thinking and feeling, right? Yes. Yeah. So starting off with, if we talk about mood disorders, the other term for mood disorders is depression. So depression is a symptom that can occur both during pregnancy and postpartum. About 15% of women experience a mood disorder or significant depression following a childbirth. And these symptoms include feelings of irritability, lack of interest in the baby. Sometimes they're very interested in the baby. So that's a misunderstanding. Sometimes people think, I love my baby, so I don't have postpartum depression. Um, My experience is that it can be either way. And so you might be very obsessed with your baby or very into your baby, or sometimes just you don't feel connected to your baby. It can be either way. Sleep, anxiety disturbances, tearfulness, crying, feelings of guilt and shame, excessive guilt. I like to call it excessive guilt where you feel guilty Mm -hmm. about things that when you really think about it, everybody's doing this every day and it's it's excessive guilt, hopelessness. There's no way out of the situation, loss of interest. Um, Don't enjoy things you used to enjoy. You can't remember the last time you belly laughed and your kids do silly things and you think that's not, I don't, I don't get joy from that. So, Mm -hmm. so when we think about the umbrella of depression symptoms, um, within depression, we can also see other mood disorders that can happen and more rarely, but sometimes postpartum, um, and during pregnancy can trigger like a bipolar episodes. And that's when someone might have more energy or more um, hyper awareness about things, um, obsessions about um, maybe some paranoia or have heightened energy, can't sleep, things like that. And that's where the mood goes the other side of, of, of things where you just have heightened energy. Um, and again, this falls under the umbrella of mood disorders. Um, and um, so that, that's what I would call that umbrella of depression disorders. And then under another umbrella are anxiety disorders. And anxiety symptoms are actually a, it's an umbrella term. And that includes uh, generalized anxiety disorder, OCD, which is the obsessive compulsive disorder, panic disorder, PTSD, um, 
and like a social phobia. And so the same disorders that we can get in other parts of our life, we can, we are more prone to get postpartum um, if, if we've had them before, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And so anxiety symptoms include things like constant thinking, 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 usually heightened energy about things and um, generalizing anxiety disorder falls into that, like where you just, you think, 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 you have a lot of exaggerated worry and tension, a sense of urgency. It's um, per- people with perfectionistic personality types are more at risk of having generalized anxiety disorder, which mm-hmm. really kind of makes sense. At the yeah. same time, I love my perfectionistic personality type people because they are the people that get things done and, <laughs> and keep yeah. things going in life. <laughs> but um, but it is like another another side of it that they might mm-hmm. be more tendency to to worry and have a lot of tension in their life. Um, well, I've got my hand sense. up over here because that's me. <laughs> Is that you? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's like 90% of people who have postpartum anxiety um, will say, yeah, I'm a perfectionistic type. I know. I'm working on it. Yeah, but it's a good thing. Don't... I, like the, I like the term recovering perfectionist. <laughs> oh, I like that too. That's good. That's really good. <laughs> okay. The other one I was going to talk about is obsessive compulsive disorder and and by the way, I'm listing all these, and if you've taken any psychology classes, you begin to say, I have that, I have that, I have all of these. And then I, and so these are all just listed in no way because I'm listing it this way, you might identify it doesn't mean you have this disorder if we're talking about this. So that's my little caveat. Um, and this can be a triggering one to talk about obsessive compulsive disorder because it encompasses something that's commonly t- talked about, which is intrusive thoughts in the postpartum period. Right. And I thought I'd talk a little bit about that now. Is that all right if we go into that just a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the disclaimer. Yeah. So um, obsessive compulsive disorder is most commonly thought of by people counting or washing hands, checking the stove. And that's that's certainly, and I've seen that um, for many women as a disorder postpartum. What is more common and postpartum is is something called intrusive thoughts so that instead of having a behavior that is intrusive it's more the thoughts and it's hard to stop the thinking of perhaps it's a like what if thought what if I drop the baby what if something bad happens what if something happens to me my husband and it's everybody has intrusive thoughts I like to say that that Mm -hmm. uh, we all have intrusive thoughts right like what if this happens but for someone who has an anxiety disorder, it's not a what if and then let it go. It's really hard to let it go for someone with an anxiety disorder. They mm-hmm. will tend to be like, I can't let it go. I don't want to think about it, but I can't stop thinking about it. Right. And so then that's why we call it like a compulsive thought disorder, an OCD thought. And the other thing to know about this is it's it's also very treatable and there are really great ways to to help men and women during this time of life to to understand it the other thing that we want to separate is a thought is just a thought it's not a behavior so sometimes people will have scary thoughts like what if and then you fill in the blank with a scary thought Mm -hmm. and we want to separate that that's not the same as actually planning to do it or 
usually that's my one way to separate out. Is this a suicidal thought or a homicidal thought or is it an intrusive thought is when I ask, you know, you had this what if thought, would you actually ever do it? And women always, they almost begin to cry and say, of course, I would never do that. Like, and they're almost offended, I would ask. And so do you see the hallmark there of the difference? Yeah. Of, and that's really important to know is, um, and so a lot of times women with intrusive thoughts are very scared to talk to providers about the true nature of their thoughts. They're afraid about authorities taking their children away or someone thinking they're a really bad mom or dad. And so beginning to say, it is just a thought. A thought is just a thought. It doesn't make it true or it doesn't make it real when it's just a thought. Our minds think all kinds of crazy things. And when we have an anxiety disorder, it just goes on repetitive nature. And I think if you don't mind me adding this on, um, that for women who are having these scary thoughts, one of the things that I've learned in studying this a little bit is that often the fear, um, especially if it has to do with what if I harm somebody or you know even my child, it, that thought exists often stems from a place of heightened protection, right? It's a a, a need to protect your child. It actually is because you are such an incredibly loving and caring mother. Yes. And so I always, I want moms to know who are listening right now as we describe this, that it's because you care and love and protect and are so very opposite of those thoughts. It's just that there's just a confusion, a little malfunctioning kind of going on in in the brain. So I hope you don't mind me kind of throwing that in there, but I think it's just so important. Yeah, no, I think that's very important to talk about. In fact, this is a little technical, but I share this information with my clients because I think it's very important to know. You're talking about kind of that mother bear protective mode and in the part of the brain there is that drive to protect and take care of your brain and that hap- or take care of your baby and that happens in the same part of your brain as your emotions of fight flight freeze your amygdala and very near there is that the drive to protect your young to take care of your baby and one way to separate out these thoughts or a term that that is used clinically is something called ego dystonic thoughts and people sometimes feel like they might be not like themselves or they don't usually think this stuff and so they feel like there's something really wrong with them and so we use this term ego dystonic which means if someone has a thought like a what if scary thought and they tell me they would never do it but they can't stop the thought we call it an ego dystonic thought where it does not match up with the character of who you are and Mm. um Ego means self, dis means separate, and tonic means thought. Whereas someone who we would say has, this is much more rare, but a psychosis disorder where they do have thoughts to harm themselves or to harm others, or they hear voices. And again, this is very rare, but women who have postpartum intrusive thoughts oftentimes worry they have a psychosis. And this is the way as a clinician, we know the difference. Does that make sense? And then we would call those ego syntonic thoughts where 
where to them it matches up with the truth it matches up with reality uh, and cases that we would say situations in women who have postpartum psychosis their thoughts don't bother them and so the fact that the thought bothers someone mm-hmm. is a sign it's ego dystonic it's an intrusive thought it's an anxiety yeah. disorder right right okay so why don't we just go into since you've already mentioned psychosis Let's let's talk a little bit more about that because there is a mis- you've already kind of laid out what the difference is between postpartum OCD anxiety symptoms and and um, psychosis. But can we talk a little bit more about that because um, it can be very scary for those who um, have maybe heard something that's not quite correct um, for mothers who are maybe dealing with a little bit of anxiety in their their pregnancy or postpartum that are or maybe have they have a fear of developing this because of some of the anxiety that they're experiencing. Um, can we talk about what this looks like and what kind of treatment is available? Yes, absolutely. So postpartum psychosis is actually a more rare and much more serious of the postpartum disorders. It happens to one to two in a thousand women and even probably less than that. Um, I certainly have treated women with postpartum psychosis, both when they're experiencing symptoms and a recovery. The um, symptoms look, psychosis means um, being outside of yourself, feeling like you're, you have a lack of understanding, lack of connection to reality. And it means having hallucinations or delusions, hearing voices, seeing things. And delusions are like a belief that something is happening that is not happening. So paranoia, someone is watching them or out to get them. Sometimes it revolves around religious types of things. Sometimes it revolves around more uh, um, political types of issues. Again, it is very rare, and my experience is that it is a more urgent issue. And so if this is something that you experience with a loved one, it is it is something that you, you right away go and get help right away. You just don't, you don't wait around. Um, it's very treatable is the other part that I want to add in there. It, it, it does take um, usually medications to recover from. So taking some medication that helps reduce the psychosis, reduce the anxiety works very well and usually in a short amount of time. And um, an antipsychotic medication is usually needed and or a mood stabilizer. Sometimes women who have postpartum bipolar, it will look like a psychosis and that's, that's when that happens. Again, this is a more rare thing and um, and very treatable, but it, it usually does need a, an inpatient psych- psychiatric hospitalization. Mm-hmm. And um, the women that I'm seeing now postpartum that are one or two years out of this experience, um, the recovery sometimes takes time, but it, it's very treatable and understanding why it happened, what happened, what the new reality means for them, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, I like that you said that because I think that's also a really important thing that when, when you walk through, um, any kind of mood disorder like this, you have to allow yourself time. And it's really important to 
um, not try to rush the process and not try to expect that, you know, two weeks from now, I'm going to be back to myself because it does take time. And it's really important to allow yourself the time to heal, to be patient, and to do the work. Yes, absolutely. And I, th- I think that is one of the jobs as a provider for that I consider is that I maintain the hope that treatment mm-hmm. works, that mm-hmm. it might not be the first round of medications, it might not be the first therapist, but treatment works and you are going to get better. And as a therapist, yeah. I have worked with so many women who maybe a second round or a third round of something more intensive with treatment and they're disappointed, they feel like they're failing. And, and, and yet I have to say, people get better, women get better, they feel better, and they get back to themselves. And it, it sometimes takes a little bit of time and the right combination. But the hope is something that I just really hold on to. Absolutely. Yeah, that's huge. Okay, so postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, they can look um, very different and but also quite similar um, in some ways. And so sometimes it's hard for women to, to recognize what, what it is that they're actually dealing with. Um, and likewise, when we talk about kind of the baby blues, kind of where women are crying a lot and they're just feeling kind of overwhelmed by motherhood, especially in with first-time moms, can you just touch a little bit on how does a woman know when they've kind of moved from uh, an emotional, hormonal kind of state of baby blues, as we refer to it sometimes, to actual postpartum depression? And then maybe we can talk just a little bit about um, some of the similarities, the similarities between postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. Sure. The baby blues is very common. So about 90% of women experience the baby blues. And I remember experiencing the baby blues. I have two children now that are 17 and 13. So I'm outside of the postpartum experience now. But I remember with my 17-year-old sitting outside of the hospital, holding him in a wheelchair while my husband went to get the car and just crying because I was leaving the hospital. That's a very classic (laughs) postpartum blues, baby blues. Like, because who wants to leave? You know, most people do want to go home and be back in their place. But I liked being there. The nurses were so nice to me and everybody treated me so well and I felt safe there. And so, but then within two weeks, the baby blues typically goes away and it's, it's hallmarked by crying, tearfulness. Uh, it's the drop of emotions or I mean the drop of hormones that happens postpartum. So yeah, I know this is an audio show, but if you can imagine my hand going straight during pregnancy and, or then when you get pregnant, it goes up and it goes up, up, up higher than you've ever been. And then when you give birth, your hormones drop lower than they've ever been. And then Mm -hmm. if you're breastfeeding, they kind of slowly go up. If you're not breastfeeding, they go up really fast again. So that drop is what the baby blues hormonal indication Mm -hmm. is. And more and more research supports that if you have really severe baby blues, it can be a risk factor for worsened anxiety, worsened depression symptoms. Um, Also, if you have, it's not the baby blues if it's very severe. So you cannot sleep, you have suicidal thoughts, you have intrusive thoughts that last and they're hard to control, things like that. Then we, even though you might be in that two-week time frame, then we'd say, oh no, this is no longer the baby blues. This now falls into an anxiety disorder or a a depression and we need to kind of do some more intensive treatment sooner. And again, Mm -hmm. the 
severity and all that kind of stuff. It just depends on, on, on kind of what your baseline is and all that kind of, um, those kinds of factors. Okay. And does that make sense with a baby blues? And yes, yeah. Uh, um, it's, it's, yeah, that's helpful for sure. I remember uh, once I talked to a woman who I used to do kind of a, a phone call support line and she called and said, she was very tearful with me on the phone. She said, my mother-in-law just went back home. My husband just started work and I can't stop crying. I've been crying for two days. And so I arranged with her. I said, let's, let's talk again in a few days and see how you're doing. I said, I think this is the baby blues, um, but I want to monitor you because that's what we want to do. We don't want to just say it's the baby blues and write it off because that could be right. a part of dismissive symptoms. Can I just quickly ask you a question? How often does that happen? Where a woman might be dismissed as it just being baby blues, but it's more. I think all the time. I I think that's so, so common. And I think that that's what like our grandmothers and our mothers and that generation is used to calling even Mm. really severe symptoms. She's got the baby blues and it's kind of this dismissive thing. And, and you know, it is when they say, just get more sleep and you'll feel better. And for Mm. someone who's suffering, they'll say sleep, isn't going to fix this. They know that they know that there is something that they do not feel like themselves. And so, yeah, that is the key factor. So this woman, actually, I called her like, in a few days, she said, I'm still, you know, kind of tearful. I'm doing okay. And I said, how about I call you in a week? And she didn't even turn my, she didn't even pick up the phone. And then she called me like two or three days after that. And she said, it was totally the baby blues. I'm totally fine. Thank you so much. I'm having a great time. Me and my baby are doing well. And oh, so, that's so awesome. it's kind of a classic story, right? But again, with yeah. supportive information and ideal setting, that's what we should be experiencing. Whereas I've also talked to someone postpartum in the hospital constant worry, frantic, feels outside of themselves, and they, they need treatment much sooner, starting up with medication, supportive therapy, and assessment for what kind of therapy is the best for them. And again, then the path is they're getting the right kind of help. They're understanding what's happening to them. We're reassuring them it's not their yes. fault. We're reassuring them that this is, this is um, and so that's what we want to do in treatment always is separate out. Like these are symptoms, just like a medical, medical symptoms. Your brain is telling you that something really bad is going to happen when it's not going to happen. And we want right. to support you. Right. So it's, I think that one of the, one of the things that, that worsens these conditions is purely just waiting too long to get that help. It all started for me when our youngest was five months old I know that I would not have gotten as bad as it did. And I really, that's probably the biggest thing that I want to convey to women is don't keep um, saying to yourself, oh, I'll probably be fine in a couple of weeks if you're already a couple months in to your postpartum, in your postpartum period. Because Absolutely. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I just really feel... That this is what women need to hear. That don't don't put off talking to somebody. Um, I mean, I think you are obviously the best type of person um, to talk to, aside from you know a spouse or someone close that you trust. Um, but it's really important to just make sure that that everything is okay. And if you just don't feel like things are right, it's really really important to talk about it right away. Absolutely. And 
my rule of thumb of when to call for help, I have a couple ideas about that as we're talking about this. And one is if you are having difficulty functioning day to day, not sleeping, not eating, or your, your mood and anxiety symptoms where you just, you feel, you, you don't feel like yourself. It is, and it, and it's going on for more than two weeks. It's time to call for help. I also want to say it's really important to call someone who specializes in this. And I'm actually Mm -hmm. on the postpartum.net postpartum support international website right now. And they have a link to specialized people in a PSI. They call it the postpartum support international helpline. They have a list of specialized treatment programs. Like we talked about earlier, they have a list of specialized therapists by region internationally. And, and so I really invite you to check that out and find someone who specializes in in this kind of treatment. And if you meet with someone and and you're not sure if they are, ask them, are you comfortable treating someone who is breastfeeding and postpartum? What's your experience with that? Because you mm, deserve to get the best kind of help. You deserve to not yes. be shamed. You deserve to not feel like you have the risk of someone calling Child Protective Services on you because you're going to share what you really are experiencing and feeling. Um, it's, it's so mm-hmm. important to get the right kind of help. And I know from personal experience, even people who mean well, professionals who mean well, if they're not specialized, then it, it can hurt the, the person getting the help. So yes, yes. And I learned that as well. I learned that as well. And I had to start advocating for myself in the sense of, of doing exactly what you're saying. I had to ask those questions and say, um, I, I really want to talk with someone who specializes or is very familiar with perinatal mood disorders because I had heard stories about women or, you know, <laughs> being misdiagnosed or, yeah, I mean, some pretty negative things. So it is really important to do that and to um, request the right kind of care and help for sure. I like that. Thank absolutely. you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Then you said earlier too, we didn't quite get to it, but just the differences between depression and anxiety oh, symptoms. Yes. Yes, and I just wanted to say, um, they are very, they're kind of sister disorders. So quite often people do have both. They have depression along mm. with anxiety, anxiety along with depression. The way that it oftentimes look alike, looks alike is that um, irritability is kind of a common denominator across both symptoms. And depression postpartum also does look a little different than it does in other times of life in the sense that it's, it can be people, uh, they want it, they wonder if, is this my new normal because now I'm a mom or now I'm a dad and now I have this big identity shift or is this depression symptoms? More often they blame themselves and say, this must be my new normal. This is who I am. And I really Mm -hmm. don't like this person (laughs) because being depressed is no fun. And so, um, and so I think that irritability piece is very common in anxiety types of symptoms. Then we would look for, you know, the, the worry, the sense of urgency, um, the helplessness, hopelessness is another overlapping factor because you feel like when you're overwhelmed, no matter how much you do, you'll never feel caught up, things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's good. I think that's really helpful. And um, I think that 
it's good to just make sure that women have that understanding because it can be really confusing. Um, and it's, it's just nice to have, I think for women to get to hear it laid out this way. So can you explain the difference between a, a somewhat normal anxiety condition? And what I mean by that is actually a less severe postpartum anxiety um, disorder versus a, a severe, a more severe anxiety disorder. I just want to talk about it a little bit because, um, you know, today people are sharing more and more in general, not necessarily postpartum um, related, but just anxiety in general. They're talking about, oh, I have, you hear people saying, I have anxiety or my anxiety or you know what I'm you know what I'm talking about it's just yes, kind of thrown yeah. out there now so we there's a very wide range here and I think it's important for us to recognize that there is anxiety where you're worrying about bad things happening but they're normal somewhat normal bad things happening like even driving in a car and getting really nervous that um, someone's gonna hit you that's a re that's a realistic fear right um but then you know we have then anxiety disorders where there are thoughts and worries that are are really out there and they're not a realistic type thing so i just kind of want to lay this out a little bit so that the listener has a better understanding of regular worry and anxiety um that's not labeled as a mental illness that's probably the best way to say it, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just want to kind of give a little bit of a look because it's a broad spectrum. It can be, right? Yes. And in fact, I think the spectrum is probably the best way to describe it, right? It is very fair to say that everybody has anxiety at different times of their life, right. like a sense of urgency, uh, worry, the what-if thoughts. And how much it disrupts your life is probably where it makes it into a disorder and not a disorder. And so mm -hmm. um, about 6% to 10% of women experience anxiety postpartum. I think that in general life, it's it, like across the lifespan, it's probably a very similar percentage of people who have an anxiety disorder. I think it's probably actually higher, but that's what the statistics say. And, um, so the symptoms of anxiety include constant worry, feeling like something bad is going to happen, racing thoughts, can't sleep, can't eat, inability to sit still. Physical symptoms oftentimes are associated with it, dizziness, hot flashes, nausea, things like that. And mm. I think that when we think about that spectrum of how people experience uncomfortable feelings, we want to remember that there has to be a certain time frame that you experience it, how much it disrupts your life. And then that right. before you would say you have an anxiety disorder um, and you're right. Everybody experiences some anxiety throughout their life, but when it's disruptive, when it hurts like you're functioning and, and it doesn't feel like yourself, then it's, then it's different. And I'd like, I think we've talked about like a perfectionistic personality type that's probably a good example of there's many people who are perfectionistic personality types, but when someone has anxiety with a perfectionistic personality type and they're in an act of anxiety, then they can't let it go. They can't stop until it's perfect. They will stay up late to finish things. Whereas someone who has anxiety and a perfectionistic personality type can say, I really want it perfect, but I did the best I could today. I'm, mm -hmm. I could let that go. And, 
I also see that my spouse did the best they could and I love them even though they made the peanut butter toast wrong <laughs> and, and there's a better way to even though there's a better way to do that I think and right. and do you see the difference that you can yeah. kind of give yourself just a little slack and um so I think that's yeah. something to kind of watch for when we're talking with other moms and they say I have postpartum anxiety how can we um talk with each other and engage with each other maybe to be proactive in our supporting them, but have a bit of an idea, what kind of leading questions might help us get a better idea of what kind of level of anxiety they're dealing with? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I'll say a few things and then you can help ask some clarified questions. Sure. So I, you touched on panic disorder. And so that's, of course, noted by having panic attacks. Uh, and mm -hmm. panic attacks are really misunderstood. Some people will say I had a um, use other terms for that, but that's the physical sensations, usually of chest pain, heart palpitations, dizziness. Sometimes a panic disorder has none of those things, and it's just like constant crying and can't stop. And so, okay. I think that probably is a question to ask. Like, have you had have you had a panic attack before? Uh, and mm -hmm. or is it that just kind of general worry that you're just always have tension and feel like there's nothing that matches up with why it's happening, but it's just kind of constantly there. So separating that right. out is always really important and understanding that. And again, is that important for a friend to friend to know? I don't, I don't know, but I think clinically and for your own self-knowledge, it's really nice to know what the term is. And because you can say I'm having a, many people think they're having a heart attack when they have their first panic attack. And so they'll mm. um, almost, and it's also a really high risk factor for preterm, preterm labor. So treating it, getting the right kind of help is really important to prevent worse, you know, more worse symptoms from happening. Mm -hmm. And so knowing, hey, that's a panic disorder. I can't stop crying. I can't, I can't get myself out of this physical state. Another hallmark of a panic disorder is you have that heightened emotion, the heightened feeling, but then there's a drop and you get really tired and you sleep for two or three hours because mm. you're you express so much emotions during that time. Mm -hmm. um, the other component of anxiety disorders, so it's an umbrella term. We talked about generalized anxiety disorder, OCD, panic disorder. The other yeah. component is post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. And I'd like to bring yes. that up because having a traumatic labor and delivery is something I, I specialize in. And I see a lot of women who have flashbacks about their birth experience they had something happen where they thought they were going to die they thought the baby was going to die and so yeah. looking back on their experience they say I think I have PTSD from that experience and so um, getting the right kind of treatment specialized treatment for that trauma treatment for that is is fairly common and fairly um, is, is really something to to take seriously and so if you if you do have those experiences again talking to someone who specializes in this someone who specializes in birth trauma is really important mm -hmm, and we can t talk some more about that because that has there's a lot more to that um but mm -hmm. i want to while we're talking about anxiety disorders just talk about also social phobia social anxiety disorders so yes in the postpartum period it looks like you know going to the grocery store the fear of speaking 
um, I think this is where the comparison, mom to mom comparisons, look how they do things, look how they do things. Will they judge me when I change my baby's diaper, how they're dressed, how I'm dressed, like that mm. social phobia and the constant thinking, thinking about what other people might think of me. And it happens more with the idea of being in social situations. And right. so those are really the five major types of anxiety disorders that um, we might see and understanding what's happening and also understanding I'm not depressed, but I have a panic disorder or understanding I'm, you know, kind of where you're at can help get the right kind of treatment. And also, again, we want to treat it the right way. There's different medications for different disorders, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's okay to have a diagnosis. I, I know for me and my personality type, um, I know that I have um, a up until last year, I mean, I, I was afraid of being labeled as something. I thought that getting a diagnosis for something like that, like, you know, I, I learned recently that I have, I have general anxiety disorder. I've had it since I was young and I didn't even know that I did because I had just been coping with a whole bunch of things for a very long time. But it was really difficult um, for me to imagine having a label like that prior to last year because I I felt like it took away from who I was like I, I you know and yet before previous to that but, but now I recognize how that is the way that I have found help and I'm finding healing and I'm actually gaining more cognitive um, I'm just going to say discipline right a healthier yes um, way of thinking now it's been helpful and it's not something to be afraid of and you don't have to be defined by these disorders and these you know what we perceive as being labels right it's not it doesn't have to be that way it's just something to describe what you're dealing with the illness that you're facing right and and um, there is and like we said before there's healing available there's so much hope um, it's just you have to be willing to be vulnerable and and um, and open about what you're dealing with and that's so absolutely important. yeah and you I think just like we would say to someone who has diabetes you are not your disorder you're not yeah. now a, di a diabetic who's no you're usually someone who has diabetes is also has many other roles in their life and it just describes their medical condition and describes what they're already experiencing. And, um, it's not your new identity. It's not, it's not any of that stuff. It's, it's right. And so to separate that out a little bit and say, I am experiencing this. The other thing that I'm so interested in is, is, and there's so much great research about this now is, is the neurobiology of the brain and of stress disorders. And mm. what we know is when people experience anxiety and mood disorders is, it is truly your brain and your body beautifully created to protect you from harm and to tell you something is not right. And so yes. Yes. your brain is saying, you know, your amygdala is saying fight or flight, something really bad is happening. And, right. and then it runs through your nervous system and your nervous system gets all revved up. And then with talk therapy and the right kinds of things, we could say, is there really an emergency? There was possibly once, or you're hardwired to see emergencies very easily and other people seem to not see them as easily as you are. So mm -hmm. to begin to understand that we can use the knowledge of neurobiology 
to get the right kind of treatment, to do things that just really match up and that your brain and your body is doing exactly what it's supposed to. It's, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just, it's giving you a message of that things, things are not quite right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back to talking about, um, the subject of intrusive thoughts, because this is, this is the one thing that is just, I think for so many women and I have walked through this as well. Um, this is the hardest thing to explain to other people. And I really want, you know, this discussion to, um, not only inform um, the listeners, but also to just really give them some kind of comfort that they're not the only one dealing with this. Because that is, I think, a lie that so many women believe because it feels so awful. And the thoughts seem so overwhelming. And so can we talk a little bit about just kind of what's going on internally with women uh can we touch on like hormonal imbalance and a few of those factors that contribute to the brain malfunctioning in this way right so with any anxiety disorder we're looking at like where the um if you were to take a pet scan of someone with anxiety disorder ocd the amygdala and the hippocampal region would be larger and your prefrontal cortex is not as active. Your prefrontal cortex is like the logic cause and effect part of your brain. And so that's probably the harder part is sometimes logically, you know, this is not likely to happen. So, but, but what's happening in the brain is that your, your fear factor of your brain, the fear part of your brain is, is really hyper functioning and kind of on overdrive Mm-hmm. So it's OCD is the most common misunderstood misdiagnosed about three to 5% of new moms and some new dads have intrusive thoughts. And I, I can talk a little bit more about what the symptoms look like, if that would be helpful and how to, I, I do want to say that this could be triggering because if, if you've yeah. had these yeah. symptoms or you're currently experiencing them, um, and again, I won't go into detail about people's examples of intrusive thoughts and, and do it in a more roundabout way for this, this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they're called intrusive thoughts, they're obsessions, they're persistent, repetitive thoughts, mental images related to the baby sometimes, oftentimes very upsetting, compulsions, um, sometimes doing something over and over again. It can include like cleaning constantly, checking many times, reordering things. And then the other factor is a sense of horror about the obsessions. Why do I think that? There must be something wrong with me for thinking this. Um, Why can't I stop thinking this? Stop, stop, stop thinking this. But you can't stop, stop, stop thinking it. Um, The fear of being left alone with an infant. I had one mom who said she was afraid of dropping her baby um, down the stairs and she, she would she called her husband home from work because she was upstairs and she said, I just, I can't, I feel like I can't trust myself to walk down the stairs with my baby. And, Mm. um, she was so embarrassed about that because she deep down knew, like she was so careful and there wasn't anything that she would ever do intentionally, but that fear just really stopped her in her tracks from doing something. And then she wondered what's wrong with me. And we want to really say that's an anxiety disorder. That's an anxious thought. And then doing some 
talk about there's we could talk some more about treatment in a bit but there are such effective treatment measures for for those kinds of symptoms um hypervigilance and this is what you talked about before um about protecting the infant the mama bear mode of Mm -hmm. not wanting to um of really the oxytocin there is some research to support that oxytocin which is your love hormone is on high with women with who have anxiety like it's just like um so Mm -hmm. because you love your baby so much because your love hormone is extra high then you're then you're extra worried and extra protective of something bad happening Mm -hmm. to your baby sometimes Mm -hmm. there's some research to support too that if you've had experience with abuse or you've had experience seeing horrible things that you're extra protective of your baby because you know that bad things do happen in this world and so then that that can be another factor not for all women but for some most women with postpartum OCD know their thoughts are bizarre they know they never act on them and so getting the right kind of treatment, the right kind of help. And I sat with so many women experiencing these and also done education with their husbands and their support people to say things, things that help or saying things like a thought is just a thought just because you think it doesn't make it true. Mm-hmm. Recognizing this is anxiety. This is not you. Um, your thought does not represent your, some people it's, you get super kind of superstitious like because I think it then it must be my new nature my new I must really want that um so another obsessive thought I hear sometimes is maybe I shouldn't have had this baby um maybe this was a big mistake and so we do some talking through of that that's when the combination of depression anxiety kind of gets intertwined and um and talking about but they say that and they're horrified by saying that because they look at the baby and everything is okay and beautiful. And, um, but the really reassuring them that their thoughts are, um, we all have crazy thoughts. Sometimes we really can't trust our feelings and our thoughts. And, yeah. um, we could, yeah. and that's, that's kind of a disheartening thing to think about really. Cause we want to think we have control of our thoughts, but we really, we really don't. We think all kinds of crazy things. So. Yeah, and I think for a person who is in a healthy place, um, who's not dealing with um, OCD or anxiety, they they can have an intrusive thought. And an example, I'm just going to give an example of this. You can drive over a bridge and all of a sudden have this intrusive thought, what if I, what if I drove off the bridge? Right, um, yeah. Right? That's a very common one. But, you know, a person who is not dealing with um, a disorder – they will just go, that's ridiculous, and move on. They won't give it another thought. They'll just keep driving. And of course, that can happen multiple times if they drive over a bridge, but it doesn't actually bring up anxiety, right? And and that would just be considered a, a normal intrusive, intrusive thought. I mean, so many people, and I've asked people because I've been doing my own research on this subject, I've been asking people, you know, have you do you have intrusive thoughts? And I've heard a few different people say, um, if they are standing on a boat, I asked this question, if you're standing on a boat, you know, would you have a thought like, what if I jumped over the edge? Lots of people will say, yeah, but it doesn't cause the anxiety and the upset, the feelings of horror that happen with a person or a mother or a person dealing with an anxiety disorder or OCD. Right. And I would argue too that someone who has intrusive thoughts postpartum 
is much more at risk of having a hard time letting it go because the stakes are much higher. So if I was a single person, 18, and I thought, what if I jump off the boat? And then I would say, huh, not going to do that. But if I am a new mom of a baby who's dependent on me, and I think, what if I jump off the boat? I think, then what would happen to my baby? Who's going to take, so it, it, you can see Mm. how the, the risk of the anxiety just ties into that psychological state of someone being dependent on you and needing you. And and so it makes so much sense. And I think that's one of the messages I'd like to give to a lot of my clients is it makes sense. This would worry you. It, It makes sense that that would bother you and it disturbs you. In fact, it comforts me that it disturbs you, but I want you to know you would never do it. And we're going to figure this out together. Yeah. 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 And again, I just want to emphasize the, the uh, really important thing that you need to, women need to just go and get the help right away, not um, put it off and kind of trying to wait it out because of embarrassment or shame or worried about what others think. You, you need to really just give yourself the, the freedom to talk to someone you trust and love. And also I think, you know, sometimes you might be misunderstood and that's okay. Then find somebody new, someone who's going to listen, someone's going to help. And a professional obviously is really the the best the best starting point um so yeah i just want moms to just really feel released and free to get that help it doesn't mean you're a bad mom it means you're a great mom absolutely absolutely and the fact that you're listening to this and hearing this just says gosh you you want to learn more about yourself you want to learn how to be Mm -hmm. a good mom and treatment really works i and you have the right to get help the right to get professional help and be supported mm-hmm. and encouraged with those professionals. Yes, yes. Okay, so a woman is experiencing symptoms that just don't feel right. She's feeling worried. She's feeling, or she's feeling really down. She's just not feeling like she can pull herself together the way that she feels like she should be a few weeks postpartum or, or maybe even a week. And how can family members and friends support this mother when she opens up about it and starts talking about it? How can they support her? Or even in a situation where they've noticed these symptoms, but she's not yet talked about it. How can they support her well? Um, And yeah, specifically, I know her husband might be the first person she talks to. Let's just let's just give some really good information here, not only for the mother, but for those that love her that might be listening. So first of all, I think you've talked about this several times, but to take it seriously and don't dismiss symptoms. So if they are coming to you and saying, I'm not feeling like myself, I can't stop crying, and they describe symptoms, to say, oh, tell me more. I'm sorry you're struggling. Let's let's figure this out. And to really make sure you listen to find out what's going on. Be careful not to dismiss it as something that will blow over or that you will feel better. It is very much okay to ask about, and if the person is coming to you more about their symptoms, what are they experiencing? How is it affecting them? And, and then remind them that they're not to blame. This isn't their fault. And this is, um, and, and that they can get the right kind of help. It's temporary, it's treatable, and with professional help, you will be well. And some of this mm-hmm. information is is from the Postpartum Support International just because it is such a great place. So some of the information um, 
I've talked about is on there and so accessible, so ready to go. So I would also say go to Postpartum Support International, go to local resources that you know specialize in this and help them find find some specialized help um, and sort it out. There are different levels of help that sometimes women need and are ready to get and men are ready to get. And, and I think I would be kind of the supportive but also an encourager to get help. It is really hard to ask for help. It's really hard to pick up the phone to call a therapist. It's like a lead. Mm-hmm. The phone feels mm-hmm. very heavy all of a sudden. Um, and so to to be okay saying, let's just do this, let's get some help, um, is also something that's really important to do, and not, um, but also not make them go faster than they're ready to. If the right. person you're talking to is suicidal or there is a risk, then that's a different story. Then it is time mm-hmm. to say, I you do give advice during those times. Otherwise, my theory and how I operate is I'm not an advice giver. I, I am a beside figuring this out together sort of person. And when they're mm-hmm. asking for help, asking what to do. But advice, we all know that when you get unwanted advice, it's it's really uncomfortable and doesn't feel very good. So No, no. And uh, I think in a a future episode, I'm going to be talking uh, more specifically about tangible support um, and different things that can be done um, for a mother who who is beginning her her healing journey. Um, uh, Let's let's just maybe if you can touch on a little bit on the topic of counseling techniques um, that are used because if a woman has never gone to counseling before, it can be really scary and intimidating uh, to go and sit with someone that they don't know and talk about what they're experiencing. So can you talk a little bit about the techniques that you use that you feel are more reliable, that are the most reliable and effective techniques, just so they get a little bit of a glimpse into what they could expect going for that, that first session? Right. So I think one of the, um, an assessment is usually a very typical first session part where, where the therapist or professional clinician is asking more about what's going on, really getting a really good description of symptoms and having time for the patient to be able to describe the client, to describe really what's happening to them. And once there is a really good idea of what symptoms are and what's happening, treatment methods that are that best work for this population are supportive therapy, supportive talk therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is very um, well regarded and that's when that kind of therapy takes a look at like what kind of thoughts and how they match up with actions and behaviors and kind of making that coordination of the two. So sometimes someone has catastrophic thoughts or excessive guilty thoughts and kind of checking in with that and and matching up with that. Um, Also, Validation of thoughts and feelings is something that a therapist who's trained in postpartum depression anxiety should be doing a lot of. It makes sense you feel that way. You're going to get better. You're not crazy. You're not. You're a good mom who cares about your baby, who cares about your kids, and that kind of validation. And quite often in my sessions, because of where moms are, sometimes they'll bring the baby. So that sometimes is a really nice thing too, is reflection of watching and reflecting, I see you making really good eye contact with your baby. I see how you hold your baby. I see how you respond to your baby. And mm-hmm. noting positive types of things is mm-hmm. also really, really good. Signs that it's not the right therapist for you. It's uncomfortable. 
they talk more than you, they tell more about their personal story, things like that are really not appropriate and not helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's probably the most common thing that I hear from clients is like, I met with them and either there's something a little off or, or they talked a lot about themselves. Um, They talked, they didn't, I didn't get to say, I didn't feel like they really got me something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Those are signs that you want to probably find someone else. Right. And, Therapy is expensive. It's an emotional mm-hmm. investment um, and a, a financial investment. So if it doesn't feel right, find someone who does. Give it a good try and then say, I'm going to do something else. And um, professionals know that that's how it works. So, and they should be yeah, okay with that. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Okay, so uh, another thing um, that is just really effective in treating a lot of these conditions but isn't always needed is medication. And that can be a scary thing for women as well um, because there's a lot of questions. What is this going to do um, to me? Is this going to change me? Is this going to make things worse? Um, and I think that the, that was me prior to ha- taking medication because I was very holistic in my thinking. And I, I did have a, a bit of a fearful um a perspective of of taking medication for something that was going on in my head essentially right that's that was kind of my take and so it was a really scary thing to to do to take medication but it was necessary for me and now in retrospect again i i really wish that i would have taken it sooner but for some women it's a really hard thing to, to do. And it also sometimes takes a little bit of trial, trial and error. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I am not a prescriber, so I'm always cautious not to speak outside of my scope, but I, um, so I want to give this information with that knowledge and it's always best to talk to a prescriber, but most, the first line of defense of medications or the class of medications that are most effective is a class called SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So Mm -hmm. like Zoloft, Lexapro, Celexa, Paxil, Prozac fall in that category. Um, Mm -hmm. They are great first line medications for depression, anxiety symptoms. And Many of these medications are safe and effective to take during pregnancy and lactation. If you are talking to a provider who says, oh no, you should wait till you're done lactating or after your pregnancy and you are experiencing significant symptoms, it is important to know that there are medications that are safe and effective to take during pregnancy and that a good provider will say, when do the risks out weigh the benefits of or when did the benefits outweigh the risk of taking medication during pregnancy or during lactation and there are great resources mother to baby um, is a really great resource that a lot of providers have as an app on their phone to look up what the um, relative infant dose is for breastfeeding moms and I worked really closely with psychiatry and Dr. Maria Music is known at University of Michigan for her work um, and research on medications and consultations and spent a lot of time with her understanding when the benefit and risks that way. And so as a therapist, my job is to support and help them understand that and reduce the guilt about taking medications 
because not taking medications under treating depression, anxiety has risks too. And that mm-hmm. includes like heightened um, cortisol flowing through your body, which is a stress hormone, which is kind of like a poison and a, it makes your heart rate go up. It can make, you can't sleep, you can't eat, um, it causes nausea sometimes. And so, and, and cortisol, if you're pregnant can cause preterm labor. And so, it's really important to just really take a look at the risk benefits. And if your doctor is recommending medications and you feel like you need it, don't feel guilty about it. It's, it's, you need to take it and it's so important. It works. And I see so many women with so much less distress that they can function and they can, they can usually be on it for six to nine months and then, and then not stay on it forever either. So it's not a new normal and it's not how, what they have to be. Someone will say, gosh, I really feel like I need this and I I am going to stay on it longer and, and sometimes mm. for much of my life. And that's okay too, but it, that's not all women. Because you started doesn't mean you'll be, be addicted and be hooked on it. That's not how it yes, works. Yes, thank you so much for mentioning that. Thank you for mentioning that because that was also something that I personally experienced was a fear that I, what if I start it and then I never have the courage to get off of it? I, I think it's important to know. I was I talked to women about this on a daily basis about when to go off medications for my clients, I work closely with the providers and say, I, and, and to just not where you don't just go off at cold Turkey or you, you, you're really yeah. thoughtful about yeah. the time of year, the stressors that are going on, things like that, about when to stop it. The best kind of treatment hands down is talk therapy and medications. It just, it is, it is, it is. And it works. And I see this all the time for women who mm-hmm. have significant symptoms and choose to do one, the road to recovery is usually slower. And so for some women, their symptoms aren't that severe. So one of them works. Um, but if you're on medications, you should be in therapy. If you're on therapy, you can maybe just do that alone too. But um, mm. therapy is, is just very important. You begin to think about your thought patterns. You get the support you need. And mm-hmm. you do have to take that look at yourself, which is really hard to do. And and yeah. I know that. So This has been a great conversation, Carrie. I thank you so much for for coming and sharing your expertise on this topic. And I'm just excited to continue the conversation and to see more awareness drawn to this topic and uh, to see the stigma go down. So thanks, Carrie, so much. Thank you so much. You may have noticed that I'm pretty passionate about women getting the help that they need right away when dealing with the symptoms of a perinatal mood disorder. I hope that my sharing about my own battle a little bit more helps one or a few of you to stop trying to fight the fear alone. Let others into your situation. It's okay to be cautious about who you share your thoughts and feelings with, but don't keep it to yourself. After years of fearing medication, I now understand just how important it can be to say yes to that extra support. It's not a crutch. It's not a cop-out. It's not a sign that says failure on it. It's just like taking medication for any other disease or disorder. In saying that, I also need to encourage you to remember that therapy, specifically cognitive behavioral therapy, combined with medication is the best treatment as Carrie mentioned. 
as a believer in the irreplaceable and transformative Word of God, I promise to always point you in the direction of the one who, as he walked through great suffering, thought of us above all, you and I. Imagine the perfect Son of God, knowing that your pain would be on his shoulders, and he took that to the cross. When you're foggy, exhausted, scared, feeling hopeless, it can be hard to pray or read God's word. But mama, persist. You will look back and see how that time investment made all the difference. Okay, here are a few quick suggestions from my heart to yours during this time. Maybe I'll have to elaborate on this a little bit more in another episode sometime. Okay, journal, write it all out, even if you burn it months down the road because it's hard to read, just write it all down. It will be a testament to the progress you're making, but writing things down also helps to remove the grip that it can have on you, especially if those thoughts are not true. It really, really can help with freeing you from the burden of, of whatever it is that you're battling okay also remind your brain of what's true when you feel anxious this is just kind of almost in addition to the journaling just the reminders that the two really work together to keep you focused to keep you steady and i promise that you will make it through reach out ask for help see a doctor admit you're afraid and know that you're going to get better it may take time but you will get there I'm living proof that it's possible. Make sure you click on that subscribe button if you haven't already. Next week, we'll be diving deeper into our maternal mental health series. So follow along on Instagram at Knowing Motherhood Podcast or on Facebook at Knowing Motherhood for more information. Okay, everyone, you're so loved. Eyes on Jesus. That's all. I'm looking forward to being here with you again next week.